0: Philippians chapter 4, if you want to turn there, we're going to pick it up in verse 2 uh, in just a moment. Uh, this is really uh, really sort of a uh, little bit of a turning point for Paul in the sense that uh, uh, he, he, he takes a moment and he addresses some personal issues between a couple of people in the church. And uh, we'll get into that uh, as we after we read it. So let's just read verses 2 and 3 together and then we'll, we'll jump into it. He writes this, I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche, to, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and with the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So, so Paul now, after dealing with all these other issues that he's been talking about in Philippians he, he, he's not only warned them of being uh, watching out for doctrinal errors and false teachers and that sort of thing. He's not only talked to them about uh, uh, selfless humility and servanthood. Uh, he actually, in a way, really is applying that here. But he addresses some relational issues, some relational problems in the church. How many of you know that sometimes uh, people in the church uh, uh, butt heads? Is that, has anybody ever seen that happen? Um, I know that's a shock. But that the, the, sometimes you have people who, whatever reason, have some disagreement. And that's just part of the fact that we're, we're in, a, the church is made up of human beings. So Paul, uh, to address this, he, he go, comes back around again to this theme of unity. And there are these two women that he mentions, Euodia and Syntyche. And, uh, and these two women are quarreling with each other. Um, and they, they, we, we don't know a lot about them, but we know that they had been workers for Christ in the church. They, very possible in, uh, in, in Philippi, it's very possible that they were even deacons in the church. But, but we know this, they were significant enough, enough in the church, they were workers with Christ, that, that their broken relationship was, was no small matter. It was, it was a growing problem in the church, and their quarrel was causing dissension in the church, how many of you have seen that where two people have an argument or some kind of disagreement? And sometimes, what happens is people in this chur- church start taking sides, and then pretty soon you've got a whole church that's that's in de- dissension with one another. And 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 apparently, Paul knew the cause of their quarrel, um, and and but he doesn't tell us what it is. But if it had been, uh, and if one of them had been in, in error then we know Paul would have corrected it because he never, he, was never, he never shied away of offering correction when he saw something going on in a church that was not right. So he, he knew it, but, but he doesn't even mention the issue in dispute, and that suggests that it was not worth correcting. It was not something that needed him to say, hey, now you, Odia, you know you're wrong on this, or <clears throat> he didn't you know, address Syntyche and say, all right, Syntyche, you got to get your act together. He didn't do that. And it just—it seems that the quarrel was was uh, was personal, but but it was excuse me, uh, was even more than that. But there was no sin, there was no error involved. So what that tells (coughs) us—excuse me—I got a little tickle right there in my throat. What that tells us is uh, that these women have made a pit out of a pothole. How many of you have known somebody, or you maybe you've walked down that road where you made a pit out of a, a, a pothole? You know what I'm talking about? Uh, where you take a small matter and you turn it into a big matter, and, 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 and this is apparently what happened, what's happening here, because if it had been a big matter, Paul would have addressed it. He would have corrected the issue. Uh, but but, but he, he deals with them. I mean, think about this. I mean, how would you like to be these two women who... Uh, Paul sees the need to call them out by name in a writ, writ letter that's written to the whole church. You know, I mean, that's not exactly the reputation that I want in that moment, but, but we know that they have caused a ruckus over something minor, and, and now it's starting to affect the church. And so Paul was like, listen, you know, you can work through your own issues personally, but when you start affecting the church, we need to address this. We can't just let it go. Now, as I said, As I said, we don't know the reason for their disagreement, but Paul begged them to set aside their differences and to agree with each other in the Lord. And and that's what he said. You know, I think the principle there that we can understand is that uh, that there are times when you maybe even disagree with someone else theologically on an issue. But if it's not a core issue, then it's okay to, to just agree to disagree. You know, you know what I'm saying? So, you know, if, uh, if somebody says, well, you know, I'm not sure about this, this little thing of theology, and somebody says, well, I believe the opposite of that. Listen, if it's if, if you believe, bottom line is, if you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and He came to give His life for the sins of the world, and through Him and he, he, Him alone can mankind be saved, you know, you can agree on the big things. And, um, and and when he says here, he says to agree with each other in the Lord, it's, it's also translated as to have the same mind. He's saying, listen, you need to, you need to come together in unity because in chapter 2, verse 2, in the, in the passage where Paul really introduced that great passage about we need to have the same mind which was in Christ, which was dealing about unity, it was dealing with a selfless humility, he actually uses the same phrase in that chapter to, say, to, to tell the church to have the same mind. And, and this phrase in, in chapter 2, verse 2, uh, it, it's, you know, it, it's applying to finding unity, even though we're, we're all very different. So in fact, it's, it's, very, it's very possible that Paul may even ha- have had these two women in mind when he wrote chapter 2. He may have known, I'm going to address this issue so, so I'm going to lay the groundwork for it, I'm going to, and I'm going to address that a little, little bit later on. And now Paul would be referring back to what he has already written in, in exhorting these women to come together in unity and to seek to put each other first. But the bottom line is, he, he doesn't say to one or the other, he doesn't say, you, odia, you need to, you need to uh, fall in line and, and make things right, or a you need to get things right. Both of them are responsible for the conflict. And both of them, he says, need to retune their harsh tones and begin to sing in harmony again. Um, and, and that's uh, the, the, the bottom line that he was trying to help them see was that the unity of, unity of the church was to be their highest concern. And, you know, I've, I've seen churches that struggled with disunity because there were people in the church that cared more about being right than they did about the unity of the church. And, uh, and the fact is, a quarreling church is no church at all because it's one from which Christ has been shut out because a person cannot be at peace with God and be divided from, from our fellow believers. You, 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 can't, you, just, you can't have the peace of God and have peace with God in that situation. And the truth is, in any group of people, and I don't care if it's a church or a bowling league, in, in any group of people, offenses will occur and, and pride will get wounded. It is going to happen. You cannot avoid uh, uh, having an offense take place in a group of people because it's just going to happen. You know, some people are more sensitive than others. And then some of us are a little more insensitive to others, you know, that sort of thing. But but it, when that happens, the, the difference between churches and other groups, the difference between the church and a bowling league or, or a, a community club or that sort of thing is that, is that pride in a church should never control the situation. When there's a disagreement, pride cannot be the controlling factor in, in, whether, in working out the details and trying to bring a resolution to it. Christians... Uh, should be eager to forgive, eager to forget, and eager to, to move on. But unfortunately, so many times we're actually eager to, we'll, we'll, we'll say we forgive, but we're eager to hold on to it and eager to store it up for later so that when they do something else, we'll pull that back off the shelf and throw it in their face again. But, uh, and there are many Christians that lack the humility or the motivation to deal with hurts in the proper way. And so because of that, what happens is grudges go on for years, and this is totally unbiblical. This is not anything, any, in any way, shape, or form what Christ says we should be. But grudges go on for years. Gossip turns, turns molehills into mountains. And, then, and hard feelings become like pillars, uh, just part of the architecture of our lives. And, and the reality is nobody in the church should be expected to agree with everyone else on every issue facing the group. Except for one issue and that is Jesus is Lord. That's our common ground. That's where we find the common ground to be able to say, okay, let's lay this aside because this is not as important as the message that Jesus is Lord. And if you hold a grudge or against anybody in the church, someone else, maybe, maybe not in this church, maybe in the past church or whatever, all I can do is beg you to settle it today. Don't don't let it go on. Find common ground in Jesus because He is our common ground. Jesus is our common ground. Make reconciliation. Now, you can't make them, you know, reconcile to you, but you can can do your part and you can forgive and ask for forgiveness on your part uh, and, and get your Christian service back to full strength. Then He goes on, though, after He addresses them, and he's, he, he talks to someone else in the congregation, but we don't know who this is. Because he says, yes, I ask you also, true companion. And he addresses this person as true companion. The identity of the true companion, or some translations call it, you know, we'll translate it, loyal, yoke fellow. The identity of this person remains really a mystery to us. Uh, it was probably very obvious to the Philippians. They probably knew exactly who he was talking to. But uh, it's it's hidden from us. That's something knowledge that has not been passed down. And it's it's a couple of possibilities. It may have been. It's possible that it, that the true companion in, in Greek, that the word translated true companion, it could be a play on a proper name. Uh, and by that, I mean there's a it could have it could have been someone named Sisygus. Which if you which would be a play if you did a play on the word on the name Sisygus, then uh, then you could come out with this. This kind of a pun, and, and, and may have been Paul, if that was the case, may have been Paul addressing this person and asking him to live up to his name and to work beside Paul in helping to bring reconciliation. And, and, and the reason we know this is a possibility is because Paul uh, used a similar play on words in his letter to Philemon, where he, he played off of the meaning of Onesimus. Onesimus was the, was, uh, the name of, that na- of the, his name means useful. And then in in sending this letter with Onesimus back to Philemon, he described how useful Onesimus had been to him. So he did a a sort of a play on on his name. And so it may be that that sort of thing. But if no play on words was intended, then we really don't know. All we have is conjecture at that point in time. There are a lot of possibilities for identity. It might have been Epaphroditus, who's the one carrying this letter back to them. Um, I think that's probably unlikely because it would be strange for him to write it in the letter and then have the guy send, you know, carry it there. He could have just told him that. Uh, It could have been Timothy. It could have been Silas. It could have been Luke because of his close relationship with the church. It could have been an elder in the church or a a head bishop in the church at Philippi. It, It could have been... He could have been referring to the church as a whole in Philippi. Some of you have even gone so far as to say that it was that maybe it was Paul's wife, but that's very unlikely in view of, of the Corinthians where he wrote um, that where he implies that he is unmarried. And 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 some have said maybe it was a comrade of Paul's in prison, but that's very unlikely because uh, he could do nothing more than Paul could do uh, at the at a distance uh, to help. Uh, uh, bring this, this relationship back together in Philippi. But whoever it was, we don't know who it was, but whoever this yoke fellow, this true companion was, Paul knew that he could count on this man to help these women work out their disagreements so that they could once again fellowship with one another and, and be good examples for the church. So uh, this is what he said. He said, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with, with Clement and with the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So, Euodia and Syntyche had worked together beside Paul in the spread of the gospel. So, you know, uh, it's a very interesting Philippi. The church of Philippi is a very interesting uh, situation because in, in many of the churches that Paul, Paul visited, you can read about it, and we know that, that men were the key players but we also know that in Philippi, the church there, that women played a very key role in founding those churches. In fact, the very first person who, to come to Christ in Philippi was a woman named Lydia. And so uh, the, and the women played a bigger role of leadership in the church in Philippi. Now, that, that reflects partially a difference in the culture of Macedonia, because that's where Philippi was, uh, from for the, the rest of the Greek-speaking world, because, for example, in Corinth, uh, w- this is where we get passages that are, you know, hotly debated where Paul talks to the, he writes to the church in Corinth and says, let women be silent in the church. And, you know, men for centuries have loved to take that and say, hey, you know, keep your mouth shut. Uh, but, but see, that was the culture, the Greek culture. It was, it would seem very unseemly in Greek culture for women to be forward and be in leadership. But in Macedonia, that was not the case. In fact, we know Lydia was a very successful business person. And, and it, so it reflected the culture of, the, of that region that women had more leadership roles in that church, which I think helps us to interpret Corinthians a little bit better because it helps us see that those references had to do with the church having a good witness in the culture in, in which it was planted. Um, so, so I think that's significant that we see this, uh, that Euodia and Syntyche were co-workers with Paul. Paul saw them that way. And, and he, he uses the word labored, or it's also translated contended. He said, the, and that, that literally means to struggle against opposition, to strive, to work earnestly. He says, in essence, he says, these women have fought side by side with me for the gospel. So these are not just two random ladies in the church. These are significant players in the kingdom. And, and they, they, these are women who had, who had gotten involved beyond just the basic comfort level for the sake of spreading the good news. And, um, uh, and when he mentions them, it also it, it reminded Paul of another man named Clement. We don't know anything about him. There was a Clement in Rome. Uh, who became a bishop in Rome, it's very unlikely that's the same one because Clement was a very, very, or Clement, however you want to say it, was a very, very common name. So it's unlikely it's the same person. Uh, but he mentions him, and then he mentions other fellow workers who had also labored along with Paul. And, uh, and, it's, and I, I like what Paul did because he said, he said, uh, and other workers whose names are in the book of life, he said... Uh, Basically he's saying, I don't, I, I don't have time to list everybody's name here, but it doesn't matter if your name is written here in this letter that I'm writing because your name is written, written in, the, in the book of life. And, and so while they may not have been listed there, we can be sure that each person's name is in the book of life. And that's an interesting phrase by itself because in the Old Testament, um, that the, the, the concept there referred to a register of God's covenant people. And the, the book that it talks about there, the book of life, listen, let, let's, just, let's, be, let's just be real here. We don't know if that is real or symbolic. We don't know if there's an actual scroll that Jesus has in his hands or if it's symbolic. Uh, but, but the fact is what it tells us, here's the important part of it. It tells us that, that God has knowledge of who belongs to him. That's really what it means. If your name is in the book of life, in the Lamb's book of life, what that means is he knows who belongs to him. And so, uh, and we know that he's also using a picture here because ancient cities had roll books that contained the names of all who had a right to citizenship. And in this way, he's saying uh, to the... Philippian believers, he's saying, hey, listen, you're, you're not just a citizen. Remember, he, that was a key word that he used, last, we talked about last week. You're not just a citizen of this Roman colony of Philippi, but you're a citizen of heaven. And you're not just listed on the register of citizens in Philippi, but you are registered in, in God's register. Your name is on his book, and, and, and he's going to admit all on that role into heaven. Um, God is keeping track of those things. Look at verse four. Verse one of the most famous verses. This is a, this is one of our what I call our coffee cup verses. Uh, this is our bumper one of our bumper sticker verses that we like in the church because we like to pull verses out, you know, and just slapping slapping on something like that, and you know, and but it's you know it's a beautiful little saying. He says, "Rejoice in the Lord always." Again, I, I will say rejoice. Now. See, we like to throw that on a coffee mug and we like to say, oh yeah, let's rejoice in the Lord always. But I think because we live, you know, in our culture, we, we have it pretty easy. We really do. Um, it's, it's, I think we lose the weight of that because here's a man in prison who's writing to a church who's suffering through persecution and he's telling them, even though he's in prison, he's saying, listen, rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice in the Lord always. Doesn't matter what happens in your life. Rejoice in the Lord. You don't have to rejoice in your circumstances because you can rejoice in the Lord. You are in Jesus. You know Jesus, so you can rejoice no matter what happens in life. And so that teaches us a really, really important lesson, a principle for life that we need to get a hold of, and that is this, our inner attitudes do not have to reflect our outward circumstances. And a lot of Christians really need to get a hold of this because what happens is when things go bad, all of a sudden our attitudes change and our attitude goes bad. Have you, you ever seen anybody like that where you, could, you knew exactly if they had a good day or a, ba- a good week or a bad day or a bad week because you knew that, that uh, if they had a bad day, that they were going to be all grumpy and down in the dumps and just going to be just terrible to be around. And Paul's saying, listen, you don't have to be like that. He's saying you can you can ignore the circumstances because your joy is not tied to the circumstances. Your happiness is. because Remember, we've talked about that before. Happiness comes from uh, 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 old English words word that's, that's happenings, So it has to do with what happens around you. That's your happiness is tied to that. But your joy is not tied to circumstances and what happens around you. Your joy is tied to the fact that you are in Christ, that you are a follower of Jesus, that you know him, that you walk with him. And so he says, listen, doesn't matter what your circumstances are because none of those circumstances can possibly change the reality that you know Christ. Therefore, you can rejoice in the Lord. He he was full of joy. Paul was full of joy because he knew that no matter what happened to him, Jesus Christ was with him and nobody could take that away from him. I mean, he faced false teachers. He faced severe people problems. He faced uh, horrible issues in churches. He faced the threat of death. He faced physical uh, torture and punishment. And yet several times in this letter, he urged the Philippians to be joyful. And, and he did it, not only for him because that's how he was living, but he also did it because, you know what, the Philippians needed to be reminded of it. How many of you need to be reminded of things once in a while? Yeah, you know, you, you, when things are going bad, sometimes we need to be reminded that I don't have to, I don't have to be under the circumstances. I need to hear that. It's easy to get discouraged about unpleasant circumstances or it's easy to take, get this one, how easy is it to take unimportant events too seriously? Isn't that easy? And and while believers will often encounter situations in which they cannot be happy, he never tells us you have to always be happy. He says, but you can always rejoice. There are circumstances when you lose someone you love You're not going to be happy about that. Something's wrong with you if you're happy about about that, that loss in your life. But you can still have joy in the middle of that because you know this is not the end for me. And if that person knows Christ, you have even greater joy because you know that you know exactly where they are. He says, so it doesn't matter. Even when you encounter situations where you can't be happy you can still always rejoice in the Lord. And, and he, he's not calling us to have this empty, put-on show of happiness. He's not ask, calling us to you know, put a mask on or pretend that you're happy. He's talking about a genuine joy which is possible only in the Lord. And that joy is really tied very closely to the concept of peace, that I have this joy and this peace, this assurance, this calmness, knowing that I'm in the hands of the Lord. And it's only through a believer's relationship with God that that he or she finds joy in pain and joy in suffering and joy in persecution and sorrow because in spite of those things, I'm still in the Lord. I I still know him. I'm still in his hand. And nothing, like Paul said in Romans, nothing can take me from his hand. Let's look at verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone the Lord is at hand. Now that's a very, in the English standard version, that's a very unusual word when he says, uh, reasonable. Now, now think about this. Your, uh, your, uh, your joyfulness is not always visible to others. So Paul says to the Philippians to let their reasonableness, or some translations say your gentleness be seen by everyone. Now that's a very interesting thing, isn't it? Because how can Two translations. How can one translate it gentleness and another one translate it reasonableness? You know, because that seems like they're not related at all uh, to us. But but the truth is this word, this Greek word for reasonableness or gentleness, it's one of the most difficult words to translate in in all of the Bible in order to capture the full meaning because there's just not one word that can sum it all up. Uh, The the difficulty can be even seen in the number of translations given of this word. Some translations say, let your patience be seen. Some say, let your softness be seen. Some say, uh, translate it, the patient mind or forbearance or forbearing spirit. One one translator even said, let all the world know that you will meet a man halfway. So this is a a very difficult word to try to translate. But the, the Greek word, Uh, refers to a spirit that is reasonable, fair-minded, and charitable. It's all of these things. In fact, the Greeks themselves explained this word. I like this phrase. Listen to this. They explained it like this. They said it is justice and something better than justice. Justice and something better than justice. The idea was was, uh, that a man who has this quality knows when not to apply the strict letter of the law and when to relax justice, when to introduce mercy. So there's this idea of gentleness, this idea of forbearance, the patience, all of these things tied in there. And this kind of person knows that regulations are not the last word, and, they know, and he knows when not to apply the letter of the law. So the, the Christian, as Paul sees it, is the person who knows that there is something beyond justice. You know, when the, when the woman taken in adultery was brought before Jesus, Jesus could have applied the letter of the law. He had every right to if he chose to. He could have applied the letter of the law, and according to the letter of the law, she should have been stoned to death. But what did Jesus do? He went beyond justice. He went beyond justice. And, and by his death, he provided justice. He, he fulfilled justice, but then he gives us something better than justice. And the fact is, as far as justice goes, there is not one of us who deserves anything other than the condemnation of God. But, thank God, he goes far beyond justice. Paul lays it down that the mark of a Christian in his personal relationships with fellow human beings must be that he knows when to insist on justice and when to remember that there is something beyond justice. And you know what helps us to remember That there's something beyond justice when we what helps us remember that is when we remember that we got something beyond justice from God that's that mercy that's that forbearance that there is that patience all of that is rolled into this it it really describes someone willing to yield his or her own rights in order to show consideration and gentleness to others and and I want to I want to say something about that word gentleness because um, in today's world gentleness and meekness are very similar the way the world views those words because gentleness does not describe someone who is weak. Being gentle does not mean you're weak. Gentleness is very similar to meekness in this way is power under control. Because, listen, if I don't, uh, let me put it this way. I mean, we got, a little, we got a little puppy at home. I mean, he's just a little thing, cutest little thing you've ever seen. Uh, and, but, you know, I have the power to really hurt that animal if I want to. But when I pick him up, I'm very gentle with him. That means in order to have gentleness, I have to have power. See what I'm saying? Because it is power under control. If I'm if I'm not strong enough to hurt the dog, I don't have to worry about being gentle with it. Right? Because, because if I don't have enough strength to hurt the dog, I can do anything I want and I'm not going to hurt it. So I don't have to worry about being gentle. But if you have strength, if you have power, that's where gentleness comes in to the situation. Gentleness requires the use of appropriate force to achieve God's will in a situation. And so... Gentleness can look different ways at, uh, at, at different times. So, if your child, for example, is attacked by a maniac with a knife, then you know, forcefully disarming the maniac without going berserk yourself may be the essence of gentleness. Doesn't mean you're going to be, you know, real gentle and say, "Oh, here, let me just, you know, just hold your hand while you while we take that knife away." No, you're going to you're going to overpower that person to disarm them. But gentleness might be in the situation where you say, okay, now I'm not going to you know, beat the pulp out of him. That, that, would be, that could be the essence of gentleness. You, using the, but, but the flip side of that is, using that same amount of force to shake hands after church would not be considered gentle at all. So it's very closely related to the situation in hand. A, a gentle person can take a hit without retaliating and can be forceful without cruelty. That's a gentle person. Now, why should a Christian have this joy and gracious gentleness in his or her life? Well, it's very simple. He said at the end of that verse that we just read, the Lord is at hand. That's why believers are motivated to joy and gentleness by remembering that their Lord is near. And and this nearness, when when he talks about the Lord is near or the Lord is at hand, it could refer to two things. It could refer to the Lord's presence in our hearts because He promised to never leave us nor forsake us. We know that we, that we experience His presence all the time. But it also can refer to the nearness of His return. The fact that he is, his, his return is near. Now, I think Paul used wording here that, that could imply both of these meanings to the believers. So I don't think it's necessarily either or. The Lord who soon, who will soon return is the Lord who is near at hand right now. And so knowing that He is with me and knowing that He is coming back, that helps me walk in this joy. It helps me walk in this gentleness with the people around me. Now let's look at verse 6. This is where, this is where the rubber meets the road in a lot of our lives. You ready for this? Because this is a, the very first Let's see, one, two, three, four, five. The very first six words of this verse are are something that most of us really struggle with. You ready? He says, says, do not be anxious about anything. How many of you uh, find that it's difficult not to be anxious about anything? I, I just want to see if there's anybody besides me. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. So uh, attitudes of joy and gentleness combined with a constant awareness of the nearness of the Lord, that, that should begin to dispel any worry. And I, I, you know, when we talk about worry, I want to t- talk a little bit about worry. I think we've come to a point in our society where worry has become an epidemic, if, if not an outright plague. And And strangely, you know, some s- seem to treat anxiety like a close friend they don't want to lose. Some people... You know, they, they act like they use the words like they want to be free from worry and anxiety, but then they, they don't they want to hang on to it very closely. They excuse it, they make room for it, they accommodate it, they coddle it, they treat it like a destructive codependent relationship, and, and it just eats away at their joy day after day after day because the worry is just undermining everything that God's trying to do in their life. And they, 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 they think about what worry really is and what worry really does. When, when we worry, What's happening is we are preoccupied with all of these distressing fears. We're burdened by our past. We're we're, we're nervous about the present. We're tormented by the future. And worry, you know, when we are worrying, we are living in the realm of what ifs. Because worry has nothing to do with reality right now. Right? I don't worry about something that I already have. I worry about what may happen next. Isn't that true? Are you on the same page with me? Does that make any sense to anybody? I, I can only worry about what hasn't happened. Right? Because if it's already, already has happened, there's no need to worry about it. I just got to deal with it then. So worry is, is dealing with the realm of what ifs. And we live in the land of what if all the time in our lives. Well, what if she does this? What if that happens? What if they're in a car accident? What if they don't make the right choice? What if this happens? What if I don't have enough money to pay the bills? What if I don't, you know, whatever. We just go in this. And and, and that kind of mental and emotional agitation cannot be healthy for us. You know what? It, It is no wonder that Jesus took worry head on in the Sermon on the Mount. Which he did. Five times in that famous passage, the Greek term meaning to worry appears. I'm going to read him to you. All from Matthew 6, verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? So he's right there. Don't worry. Verse 27. Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? no. But by worrying, you can probably take a few off. Verse 28, and why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Verse 31, so do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? Verse 34, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Jesus attacks this whole thing of worry head on right there in the Sermon on the Mount, most famous sermon that, that in the history of the world, frankly. And he attacks it head on. And those who engage in this incessant worry, you know, they find their lives off kilter and teetering and sometimes on the edge of a breakdown. But you know, think about what worry is and why it is so bad. Worry in its essence, is really a subtle form of distrust in God. When believers worry, they're saying that somewhere deep inside, they're not sure that they trust that God will provide. They're saying that they, that, they, that deep inside, maybe they doubt that He cares enough for them to actually come through on their behalf. They're saying that, that maybe... They just have a little bit of doubt that that he's going to handle the situation. And you know what worry does? Worry leads us to a helpless, hopeless feeling, and it causes believers to be paralyzed. We get paralyzed in our worry and in our fear about what could happen, and we don't do anything because we're afraid of something that might happen when it hasn't happened and probably won't happen. You know, it may seem impossible not to worry. Does anybody find that? You ever feel like this? Like, I try not to worry. It's impossible. and It may seem impossible not to worry about anything. But you know what? The only way we can get to that place is if we as believers truly give our worries to God. If we put them in His hands, then they're His worries, not ours. So, Paul really offered prayer as an antidote to worry. Uh, a, a, a man named M.R. Vincent had this quote. He said, Pe- peace is the fruit of believing prayer. Prayer combats worry by, uh, by allowing us a, a, a catharsis. See, where we can, we can offload our stress onto God. So Paul, what he's saying in essence, he's saying, take all the energy that you you use in worrying and put that energy into praying. So instead of sitting around worrying about what's going to happen, well, what if she does this? Then instead of worrying about it, begin praying about it. Begin putting that in the hands of God. Beginning to, begin to put your trust in God to deal with that situation. And, and so he says, do this uh, to use, uh, use all the energy you've used in worrying and put it into praying. But, but we also need to understand this, that, that that includes praying about everything. Paul stresses that we can take everything to God in prayer. He said, be anxious for nothing but pray about everything. And, and you know what? I just, I've got to give you a little word study here. Everything means everything. You know, it has, as it has been beautifully put, there is nothing too great for God's power and there's nothing too small for His fatherly care. You know, a, a child can take anything, whether it's great or small, to a parent, and they're sure that whatever happens to him or her is of interest in the mind of that parent, their, their triumphs, their disappointments, you know, even their, their passing cuts and bruises, uh, you know, all of those things. And, and, and they go to their parent and they're confident that their parent wants to hear what's going on in their life. And they bring everything to their, to their mom or their dad. But we, we can in exactly the same way take anything and everything to God and we can be sure of His interest and His concern because it matters to us, it does matter to Him. No, no request is too small. No request is too big. No request is so meaningless. No request is, is too difficult. And no request is inconsequential to God. We need to pray in everything good times and in bad times we need to be praying we need to be taking it all to him he said worry about nothing pray about everything If you feel agitated, pray about it. If if you're scared, lift it up to the Lord. If you're burdened by a past that threatens to come back and haunt you, then go to God and ask Him to take it from you. If if you can't get through a minute of the day without stressing about your loved ones, spend some time interceding on their behalf instead of mentally and emotionally running through fruitless what-if scenarios. Worry and prayer cannot coexist in the same life at the same time. And then he says to do it in thanksgiving, because thanksgiving, the the prayer is the act that we do, but thanksgiving focuses on the attitude of our heart in approaching God. Prayer combats worry by creating, creating in us a thankful heart. Believers should come to God in prayer, thankful for the opportunity to even approach Him, Uh, We should come to him in prayer thankful for the the tremendous blessings that he's already bestowed upon us. I mean, you take note of everything he's done for you and and you give him thanks for that. We should come to God in prayer thankful for the certainty that he will answer his children. Now, we're going to talk about that in a minute because it doesn't mean he gives us what we want, but it means he will answer. And when believers focus on God's great love for them and and the many prayers that he's already answered, you know what? Then we have no room for worry left about whether he's going to continue to answer because we know he will. Prayer, it really combats worry by building trust. The more I pray, the more I walk with him, the more trust I have in him. And the more trust I have in that relationship with God, the less i worry. presenting by the way and this is what i wanted to say about uh, we're certain that he will answer presenting our needs to god however we need to know this does not guarantee that he will say yes to every prayer. no parent does that. not a good parent. a good parent does not say yes to every request their child makes. is that right? you would say that's a horrible parent and they're ruining that child, setting them up for disaster in their life. So God's not going to say yes to everything that we want because sometimes we want things that that are not good for us. Sometimes we want things for which we are not ready yet, right? I mean, think about Jesus. Jesus prayed that the cup might be taken from him, but it wasn't. Paul prayed that the thorn in the flesh might be removed, but but God chose to work through Paul despite his problem. In, in prayer, we're to present our request to God, but as we do that, we have to focus on God's will, not our will. We already know it's easy for us. We know what God wants. We know our will, oh, excuse me, we know what, what we want. We know our will. But we have to focus on what God's want, because when we communicate with God, when we pray, we don't demand what we want, but rather we've, we discuss with him what he wants for us. That is really the essence of submission. Uh, in fact, I, I would say this to you. People in our world, we don't understand submission because we think, and, and we've twisted it, we've, we've messed it up, we think submission is, is just keep your mouth shut and do what you're told. That's not submission. Um, Submission is when you speak what's truly on your heart and on your mind to the person that's in authority, but then you trust the person in authority to make the right decision based on the information you've given them. So you can't truly submit until you've spoken what's on your heart. So wives, when, you're, when you read in the Bible and it says, wives, submit to your husbands, it doesn't mean that, he's, that he has the right to keep you under his thumb and make you do whatever he wants you to do. That's not what it means at all. It means that he carries the responsibility he's going to answer to God for the decisions he makes for your family, but he needs your input. So to submit to him, you, you must tell him what you truly think and what you truly feel. And then you trust him to make a decision that's going to be for your good. And if he does not do that, then he will answer to God. And, um, and, 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 and that's, that's what true submission. Is. So one of, the, one of the most important ways we can submit ourselves to God is by being honest about what's in our heart. It's kind of funny that we try not to be honest because it's as if... He doesn't already know, right? But we submit to Him by being honest about what's in our heart, about what we want, about our desires. But then we focus on His will and we trust Him to make the right decision in answering the prayer in a way that's going to be for our good. So Paul's advice, in essence, is to turn our worries into prayers. Bottom line, if you want to worry less, then pray more. Look at, look at verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, if believers take to heart Paul's words in verses 4 through 6, then they will turn away from anxiety and worry to prayer, and the result will be that they will be filled with the peace of God. And this peace that he's talking about here is different than the world's peace. Because the world thinks peace is just absence of strife. Absence of conflict. It's not. It goes way beyond that. It is a peace that Jesus promised his disciples and, and everybody else who would follow him. John 14, 27, Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. This is the peace of God. My peace I leave, uh, I give to you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Listen, true peace is not found in positive thinking it's not found in the absence of conflict it's not found in good feelings true peace comes from knowing god and trusting that he is in control trusting that he loves you enough to do what's best for you not necessarily what's most comfortable for you how many of you have found in your life that what's best for you is often not what's most comfortable for you right if you've ever tried to exercise, you understand that perfectly. Because it may be best for you to exercise, but it is not comfortable. Can I get an amen? <laughs> Believers are, are given peace with God when they believe. Peace with God is when, is when the, the war is settled. I'm no longer the enemy of God. But then as we walk with him, we have this inner quiet of the peace of God. The peace that comes from him as I walk with him daily. And that peace, he said, transcends all understanding. And that that phrase really means a couple of things. It means that the peace of God is such a mystery that man's mind cannot understand it. can't describe it. This is one of the most difficult things when, when you try to teach on this because it's, it it, goes, it transcends all human understanding. Well, then how in the world am I going to be able to communicate that to you if I can't even wrap my brain around it completely? So it's very difficult, but I cannot understand it. And it, one way to understand it is, it, it, to get a, a picture of it anyway, is, is, is to realize that it is this peace that we have that uh, you see in people's lives. Maybe somebody just loses someone in a tragic accident and then you look at them and because they know Christ they have this overwhelming peace that carries them through that and when the world looks at that they say that is not a natural reaction to what just happened here it goes beyond their understanding they can't get it they can't see it how can you have peace in the middle of this horrible event but it's because my peace and my joy are not tied to my circumstances. My peace and my joy are tied to the fact that I know God. It also means that the peace of God is so precious that man's mind, with all of its skill and all, all of its knowledge, can never produce it. God's peace can never be of man's contriving. It can only be of God's giving. And then he says that God's peace will guard our hearts and minds. I love love, love that phrase. The peace of God, which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The Greek word for guard here is not surprise. It's a military term and it means to surround and protect a garrison or a city. Now, the Philippians being a Roman colony, they understood this they, they lived in a garrison, garrison town. They were familiar with the Roman guards who maintained watch. They guarded the city from any kind of outside attack. They felt safe and secure in that city because they had guards watching over them. And and he's saying God's peace is like a garrison of soldiers surrounding believers' hearts and minds, protecting them from anything that would ravage their thoughts and emotions and and try to crush them with anxiety. So listen, with the peace of God, when I pray, when I walk in that joy, he gives me the peace of God. And when I have the peace of God, that sets up an encampment around my heart and he guards me when those words Worries come and something comes and says, oh, you should worry about this. The peace of God says, no, I've got this. I've got this. God's got this. I have peace. It's going to guard my heart. It's going to keep those things out of my life. doesn't mean they don't happen, but it means they can't get to me. They can't get to my heart anymore because his peace is guarding my heart. And the, the way to peace, the way to have that kind of peace is to entrust ourselves and to entrust all whom we hold dear to the hands of the living God through prayer. That's how I can have peace. Because when that worry comes and says, oh, oh, what about this person over here? They're they're making a bad choice. I've already prayed about that. That's in the hands of the Lord. He's at work. I may not be able to see what's happening, but I know He's at work in their heart. Oh, what about these finances? How are you going to pay these bills by the end of the month? You don't have enough money. I don't have to worry about that. I've done everything I can do in the natural, and I've prayed. I'm trusting God. So that worry is, is not entering my life. The peace of God is guarding my heart. The way to be anxious about nothing is to be prayerful about everything. May God help us to pursue that in our lives. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the peace of God that passes all understanding. And Lord, I think everyone here, because of our frail humanity, we all struggle with worry at, to, at one, to one degree or another. And Lord, I pray in those moments when the worry starts eating away at our mind and eating away at our joy and eating away at our peace, Lord God, that we would be reminded that we can use the energy that we're using to worship and instead begin to use that energy to pray and to, and to call out those, those people and those needs and those itch situations and those issues. We can call those things out to God. And, and as we do that, we can put them in your hands. And Lord, we can begin to trust you with them. And as we trust you with them, then then, Lord God, we can walk in peace knowing that we're in your hands, knowing that you're at work, knowing that you're going to see us through. It may not be comfortable, it may not be worked out the way that we want it to be, but we know, Lord God, that you're in control, that we're in your hands, and you're working your will in our lives. And God, that gives us peace and joy that cannot be lost, that the world cannot take away, that the world cannot understand. So, Lord, help us to walk that way. Help us to live that way. Teach us to pray instead of worrying. We ask all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.